This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll feature a report on politics in Montana, where Democrats hope to take the state's one-house seat away from Republicans in a special election next week. It's a first step towards retaking the whole House of Representatives. Don Guttenplan went to Billings. We'll speak with him about it later in the show. Also, a week before Donald Trump fired FBI Director James Comey, Ivanka Trump published her long-awaited book, Women Who Work. That means it's time for another episode of Ivanka Watch with Amy Willens. But first, could Trump be removed from office before the end of his term? Should he be removed from office? One note, we recorded this segment before we heard the news that President Trump had asked FBI Director James Comey to end the inquiry into Michael Flynn's dealings with the Russians. That seems like an obstruction of justice and an impeachable offense. Impeachment, just to review, is the action by the House where a simple majority can bring charges against the president, which then goes to the Senate, where conviction and removal from office require a two-thirds vote. So conviction in the Senate seems impossible right now, but the House could vote for impeachment if the Democrats regain control next year. But is that a good idea? For comment, we turn to Harold Meyerson. He's executive editor of The American Prospect and a regular contributor to the L.A. Times op-ed page and other publications. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Here's the deal. The Constitution says the president can be impeached if he is charged with high crimes and misdemeanors. Of course, it's hardly ever happened in 228 years. Only one president has resigned in the face of an impeachment trial. His name was Nixon. Two presidents have been impeached. Bill Clinton and Andrew Johnson both were acquitted by the Senate. So normally you would say it doesn't happen. But nothing about Trump is normal. So I want to start with the concept of high crimes and misdemeanors. The people who know about this say this is not the same as violating the federal criminal code. The most important thing to know about impeachment is that it's a political process, not a criminal proceeding. And there are some interesting lessons from the two cases in our recent history. First, the success of the Democrats in removing Nixon, and second, the failure of the Republicans to remove Clinton. Historians will tell you Nixon made some fundamental mistakes. He underestimated the threat, partly because he'd won such a huge victory in 1972, believed he was massively popular, and that he could challenge the authority of the courts that ordered him to turn over the White House tapes, which he refused to do. And then, of course, he fired the special prosecutor who had sought the tapes, Archibald Cox. Hypothetically here, let's look at Trump. Would you say that he uh, underestimates the threat? It's not clear that Trump estimates 
period, actually, John. <laughs> we, we, the man's mental processes, as David Brooks has written in the New York Times this week, are possibly at times those of an almost infantile character. But, you know, in addition to the Nixon, Clinton, and Andrew Johnson precedents, there's a fourth I would like to bring up, and this is from sure. the great Clint Eastwood uh, Western Unforgiven, <laughs> okay. when uh, Eastwood is about to shoot and kill the Gene Hackman character, who is a thoroughly uh, repulsive character in the movie. And Hackman says, I don't deserve this. And Eastwood says, deserves got nothing to do with it. <laughs> and I think as we think about the history of impeachment in the United States, you know, there are times when deserves got nothing to do with it, as in the case of uh, Bill Clinton. And uh, what it really suggests is there has to be a kind of political, if not quite consensus, at least overwhelming opinion that uh, the incumbent president can no longer serve, that it's, he's just crossed some lines. And as you said, these lines aren't necessarily lines of the federal criminal code. They're lines of sort of constitutional understanding. And uh, that's what Nixon ran up against when he th thought about withholding tapes that had been subpoenaed by Congress at this point, and that the uh, Supreme Court uh, upheld Congress and rejected his appeal not to release the tapes. At that point, he was clearly going to be found guilty of covering up the Watergate break-in once the tapes were released. It was quite clear he had no support left, and uh, three leading Republican senators, including Barry Goldwater, went to the White House and told him it was all over, at which point Nixon said, all right, well, if I don't have any votes, it's all over. So it takes really a, a, you know, a, more than simply uh, one party, which is what happened with Bill Clinton. And it's, it's hard to imagine Republicans moving that way against Trump, absent something you know, as glaring as uh, what did Nixon in, and probably even more, because you have a whole network, uh, literally a network, Fox News, and, and now we have Sinclair News, which is going to be worse than Fox and is taking over 143 TV stations telling their viewers something entirely different from what is the case. So it would have to reach a kind of glaring level that even Republicans, who, as I said, now support Trump still at an 85 percent rate, according to the latest polls, turning, turning against him. So then it becomes a tactical question. If the Democrats win the House in 2018, which is a real, a real possibility, should they go after Trump? It would probably be, narrowly speaking, a tactical mistake for the Democrats to do that in the absence of being able to put forward you know, their own alternative program to Trump, which addresses the one thing I think that, that got Trump the swing votes that he uh, needed to win, and, and, and that is issues of jobs and so on. And so the Democrats have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. They have to, to present a really uh, progressive, but also job-creating alternative program. You know, if they can do that and do impeachment simultaneously, then I think it becomes less of a problem. But, you know, impeachment tends to uh, suck all the other oxygen out of the yeah. room uh, and all the other political space. So it's, it's not clear to me that they can. But again, this, this depends on, you know, what Trump does and, and what turns up. If it's as clear as it finally was with Nixon, then uh, I think it's, it's not only proper in a legal and moral sense, but also in a political sense to go ahead and do it. Clinton understood 
what we've been talking about here. Impeachment is fundamentally a, a political contest, and he worked to keep the support of Democrats in Congress and the country. He did pretty well. By the time the House voted to impeach him, or the House Republicans voted to impeach him, his approval rating was more than 70 percent. Just remind us of where Trump stands in the approval ratings right now. Well, it's a little under 40, which is a record for someone who's only been in office a little more than 100 days. And remember, I mean, Trump lost the uh, popular vote contest to Hillary Clinton, coming in at about 46% of the vote, and he's been been moving downward. Although, you know, it, it, it should be said that that 40% reflects basically, uh, as I mentioned earlier, 85% support from Republicans yeah. and uh, a rather piddling amount from Democrats and independents. You know, I mean, Republicans are obviously, on the one hand, nervous about how they might fare in the 2018 elections being tied uh, to this guy on the one hand. On the other hand, they are also nervous about getting primaried by a Trumpian core of supporters within their own party. So they are, to a certain degree, between the rock of the primary and the hard place of the general. The 2018 midterms are indeed the focus of all of what we're talking about here. Peter Osnos in The New Yorker, who wrote a big piece on how impeachment could work, quotes a a Republican expert saying, historically, after one political party takes the House, the Senate, and the White House, they typically lose 35 seats in the House at the next midterm especially when the incumbent president is unpopular. That makes it seem like the Democrats' chances are pretty good. Well, you know, uh, these are general rules that were computed before the post-2010 gerrymandering of yeah. congressional districts in many states. So that is a, uh, a limiting factor. The other limiting factor is that the votes that are cast in presidential elections that tend not to be cast in midterm elections tend to come disproportionately from young people and minorities who vote heavily Democratic. So those are two cautionary notes. The, the non-cautionary note is that there are 23 Republican members of the House who represent districts that Clinton carried, and that the Democratic constituencies are more mobilized earlier. I mean, good Lord, the Women's March was, you know, one day after <laughs> yes. the inauguration. Are, are, mo- are more mobilized earlier than, than anyone has ever been before that I know of in American politics, and that candidates and some plausible candidates are already coming out of the woodwork to run against Republicans in swing districts. So if the Republicans are nervous, they have, good, good, I think, good reason to be. So how likely is it that Trump will be impeached? How likely is it that Trump will not complete his first term? The New Yorker quotes Senator Mark Warner, Democrat of Virginia, who's the ranking Democrat on the Senate Intelligence Committee, who has seen at least some of what the committee has found but has not yet released to the public about the Trump campaign's collusion with the Russians. Mark Warner is quoted in The New Yorker saying that he puts the odds against Trump completing a full term at two to one. That is, he says it's twice as likely that Trump will not complete a full term. And he adds, not necessarily because of the Russia collusion, but because of everything about Trump. What do you think about that? I think that's a little high. I mean, uh, obviously, Democrats have to make gains in the 2018 election, I think, for us to even be talking about that. But that said, if this is the case, there has to be something so glaring that it, you know, erodes 
at least half of Trump's Republican support. It has to go from 80-some percent, I think, to 40-some percent. The political changes in, in, in American politics just over the last half decade have been so profound that what might have done a guy in five years ago, uh, even with the Republican Party, might not do him in now. We shall see. Harold Meyerson of The American Prospect. Harold, thanks for talking with us today. Always a pleasure, John. Democrats need to retake the House next year, and next Thursday, May 25th, they have a chance to take one step in that direction with a special election in Montana to replace the state's Republican representative, who was named Secretary of the Interior by President Trump. The nation sent D.D. Guttenplan to Billings to report on the race, and we turn to him now. Of course, he's the nation's editor-at-large. His book, American Radical, The Life and Times of I.F. Stone, was awarded the Sperber Prize for Biography. And his latest book, The Nation, A Biography, is available in print or as an ebook at thenation.com slash ebooks. We reached him today at home in London. Don Guttenplan, welcome back. Thanks, John. Good to be here. Well, Hillary lost Montana by more than 20 points. What makes Democrats think they have a chance to win Montana's one House seat? Well, for one thing, in the same election, uh, Steve Bullock won Montana, the Democratic governor. And the man he defeated, Greg Gianforte, is the Republican candidate for Congress in the seat vacated by Rob Zink. So Montanans have shown over many years that they are perfectly adept at splitting tickets. The Democrat Rob Quist calls Greg Gianforte a millionaire from New Jersey. That sounds like it could be devastating in Montana politics. Is it true? He did grow up and go to college in New Jersey, He and he made his first fortune in New Jersey. He actually was born in Pennsylvania. So it may be that if you consider New Jersey an insult, that's slightly unfair. On the other hand, he's not just a millionaire. He's a multimillionaire or a billionaire. So you have to figure that Quist gave him a bit of a break in that characterization, whereas Quist is about as far from either of those as you can get. And just to stick with Greg Gianforte for one more minute, how long has he lived in Montana? He lived in Montana for over 20 years. He moved to Montana after he sold his first software company for $10 million and uh, essentially came out to retire in Montana. One of the folks I talked to in Montana said, you know, people used to buy a cabin in Montana, but since there's been so much inequality in the United States, people now, you get millionaires and billionaires buying whole ranches. So he's one of those people. He bought a ranch. And then, uh, and this has already come up in the campaign, one of the things he did was he filed suit against the state to keep people from using his land as access to a river to go fishing. And that's not particularly a popular thing to do in Montana. Who is Rob Quist and what kind of campaign is he running? Good question. Well, Rob Quist is not a politician. He, he's a musician by profession. He's a banjo player, a guitar player, a lead singer with two groups. One is called Rob Quist and Great Northern, and that's the kind of band that he fronts these days. But in Montana, he's a legend because he was from something called the Mission Mountain. He was one of the founders of something called the Mission Mountain Wood Band, which was a kind of electric bluegrass band. And what kind of campaign is he running? 
He's running a really interesting campaign. It's certainly a grassroots campaign, but it's also a campaign that has its base in rural Montana rather than the three or four or, as they say, the seven city strategy in Montana, because there, there are seven cities in Montana, although some of them you could miss. But he's going everywhere. He's been already to over 40 of the state's 56 counties. And part of what makes his campaign possible is that he'll go to these little crossroads towns where there's a, a general store and a feedlot and uh, maybe a gas station. And people will have heard of him because they, they know his music. You know, one of the people in his campaign told me, when you've been touring one state for 50 years, you know a lot of people. <laughs> Great. Well, Daily Coast called this race the perfect test of a populist outsider versus an out-of-touch one-percenter. Uh, is that the way the Democrats are pitching this? Well, that's the way that Daily Coast is pitching it, and they're absolutely right. The Democrats are not really pitching it. I mean, that's one of the more puzzling things about this race, is that the DNC have hardly been there and the DCCC, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, they finally put some money in last week or so, but before then they stayed out of it, and the amount of money they put in has not been huge when you consider that Gianforte spent $5.8 million of his own money running for governor. Wow. He's able to lend himself whatever he wants for this campaign, and the Republican National Committee and the uh, Congressional Victory Fund have both put in millions in this race. Rob Quist, I see, has been endorsed by Bernie Sanders, by Our Revolution, the Bernie campaign successor organization, and by Move On. What role are they playing in this campaign? They have directed the sort of sluice of small-dollar donations in his direction, and that has allowed him to fight back. So, for example, and this is this will be entertaining to listeners, uh, if you Google Rob Quist's ads, you can see a commercial where the NRA, who have also funded an ad against him, they've basically put an ad on the airwaves calling him Nancy Pelosi in a cowboy hat. And in, in Quist's ad, he picks up a, a rifle and he says, this rifle's been in my family for generations. And uh, he takes aim literally at the TV set showing the NRA ad and, and shoots out the screen. <laughs> so, we, we, and, don't, we don't have ads like that in West Los Angeles. No, we don't have, they don't have ads like that on the Upper West Side either. But in Montana, it's pretty popular. It's gotten 50,000 <laughs> views, which is about 10 times more than the NRA ad has gotten, at least on YouTube. And thanks to the daily costs and the Our Revolution money and the Move On money, Quist has also been able to put it on TV in in rotation. So, you know that it's not it's not a level playing field. It's not even close to a level pay, playing field. But the money has made a, a big difference. And it should also be said that when I asked Quist whether he wants you know uh, Tom Paris to come to Montana, he said he doesn't want to nationalize the race. He's talking to Montanans on Montana issues. On the other hand, I gather that Bernie Sanders is going to be there next weekend. And what about the Republican side? Are they nationalizing this race? Is, is this guy Absolutely. being forced? Absolutely. Donald Trump Jr. has been there twice. Mike Pence has been there once. They are sending, they are sending their A-team. On the other hand, it's not clear that their A-team is going to help them. Rob Quist has no political experience at all. He's never run for, much less been elected, to the school board or the county board of supervisors. Isn't that 
a total lack of political experience or even campaign experience a problem? Well, it might be. On the other hand, Greg Gianforti has no political experience either. Um, I would say that neither of them are masterful, natural campaigners. In fact, in debate, Gianforti struck me as a more adept debater than Quist. Uh, On the other hand, what Quist has is what you can't bottle and you can't sell and you can't fake, which is authenticity. You know, when he says something, people know that he means it. Well, let's talk a little more about Montana politics. You know, as tourists, we think of Montana as the big sky country, but it's also seen some of the most uh, brutal uh, capitalist exploitation, especially in the copper mines uh, around Butte. Uh, Is that a legacy that affects Montana politics today? Absolutely. Montana is where capitalism takes its gloves off. And that's true not just in mining and extraction, because it's not just copper. It's coal, it's uranium, it's silver. It's also, there are three oil refineries outside of Billings. And it's also a state with, you know, a lot of cattle ranches and where you have big ag crushing the small ranchers. And it's a state it's a state where you've had lots of heavy industry in terms of extractive industry, mining and smelting, and you've got ash ponds and, you know, abandoned copper mines filled with arsenic. It's got toxic waste sites across the state and very little money for cleaning them up. Part of your reporting in Montana was to talk to Montanans and a lot of these small towns. What, what are they thinking about in this election? The issues that I heard coming up as I went from Billings to Bozeman to Missoula, because it's a really big state, and I didn't cover, (laughs) I didn't even cover a quarter of it. The issues were about the environment and safeguarding the environment. They're about public access to public lands and public ownership of public lands, which has become more salient since Trump launched his review of the national monuments. I also spoke to a lot of Native American activists who have well-founded grievances against Washington, well-founded suspicion of Washington politicians, but who feel that, at least they told me, they felt Quist would be a voice for them in Washington. The other issue that comes up a lot, um, and that in a sense cuts both ways in this race, is health care. Montana is one of the states that did a Medicaid expansion and added 70,000 people. You know, those people are terrified that their health care is going to be taken away from them. On the other hand, one of the Republican big attack points against Quist is that he had tax liens on his own finances because of medical bills, because he had a botched gallbladder operation in the 90s that took him a long time to recover from. And of course, when he was recovering from it, he wasn't out on the road touring and making money. So the Republicans are basically trying to use that as an issue against him. And what I found is that for some people it hurts and for others it helps. I mean, the Native American activist I spoke to said, we we have a lot of our people who are one illness away from bankruptcy. And, you know, they, they think that it would be amazing to have somebody in Congress who actually knows what that's like. So Rob Quist is, is running a Bernie-styled campaign. That has implications far beyond Montana, doesn't it? Well, he's running a populist campaign. He's not a Bernie figure in that he doesn't, I would say that without a, without a guitar, he, he does not have Bernie's charisma. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, he's very clear in standing up for the little guy and in feeling that, you know, the system is rigged against ordinary people and that ordinary people don't have enough representation in Washington. I mean, he says, 
We have 300 millionaires in Congress. There are no Montana folk singers. There are no Montana folk singers. Excellent. Last question. I uh, The polls is what are Rob Quist's chances of winning? I wasn't able to find many polls. The last ones I saw, which are from a month ago, show Rob Quist behind <clears throat> by single digits. Has there been anything since then? What do you think it well, would be? He's still, he's still running from behind. Uh, on the other hand, polling in Montana is no better than polling anywhere else and probably worse in that there are fewer polls. Let's put it this way. It's a race that's winnable. He's not a perfect candidate in the sense of being someone who's glib and easily charismatic. And it's a big state to cover in terms of retail politics. He's doing his best, but it's not clear, you know, how many people are going to get to actually meet him. And there's a lot of money against him. So it's an uphill fight, but it's not a hopeless fight or even a huge long shot. It's a slight long shot. D.D. Guttenplan, read his report on the Montana House race at thenation.com. Don, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks for having me, John. Ivanka's new book is out, and that means it's time for another episode of Ivanka Watch. For that, we turn, of course, to Amy Willens. She's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation, the former Jerusalem correspondent of The New Yorker, an award-winning book author who publishes all over the place. Amy, welcome back. Thanks, John. Well, Ivanka finished her book, Women Who Work, Rewriting the Rules of Success, before the election, when she and Everybody else thought Hillary would win. That is, she thought we'd be reading her book when Hillary was president. That changes our reading of the book, I think. But how? You know, it's really interesting. She thought Hillary would be president. Thus, this would be a book that would be falling into a world where the president of the United States was working for women and helping Planned Parenthood and making abortion more available, contraception more available to the average American working woman. However, poor Ivanka's book uh, <laughs> is being published not not only when she has an office in the White, White House in the West Wing and is an advisor to the president on women's empowerment, among other things, but when her father is actually president someone who in his first 100 days has really been working along with the Republican Congress to reverse the advances women have made. So she's kind of stuck in a in a hard place. So this is Ivanka's second book. I think you're the only person I know who read her first. How do the two compare? I would say that unfortunately, I am probably one of the only people who's ever read both. They compare in that they're the same book. Uh-oh. <laughs> the first one was called the Trump card, playing to win in work and life. And this one is called Women Who Work, Rewriting the War Rules for Success. And I would say the only word in there that makes it the book different from the first book is rewrite. So it's really a rewrite okay. of the first book. Okay. And when I say this book is written by Ivanka Trump, I'm not using the words written by literally. Because most of the book is just a mishmash of quotes and inspirational stuff and self-help stuff cribbed from other writers on the same subject, along with nifty quotes. When they're dead, it's good. Like Gandhi, he's not complaining to Ivanka about it. But when they're alive, like Toni Morrison, no, 
<laughs> they people are complaining about these things. Yeah, I I read that she quotes Toni Morrison after a section where she says, "Don't be a slave to your email." <laughs> right. Don't be a slave to your email. And Toni Morrison is writing about actual slavery. Yes. Well, you know, this is a genre that we're not that familiar with, but that makes a huge amount of money for book publishers. It is a self-help book. It's, you know, the New York Times has a separate bestseller list. This one is not on the New York Times bestseller list of advice and how-to books, but it is on Amazon. It's not doing that well. Amazon has it this week, number 552 overall in books. But number five in books on women and business, I looked up, what, well, what are the books on women and business that she's, you know, competing with? Number one is still Sheryl Sandberg Lean In, what, a year, a year or more later. Number two is called Get Over Your Damn Self, The No BS Blueprint for Building a Life-Changing Business by somebody named Romy Neustadt. And number three is Hashtag Girl Boss by Sophia Amoruso. We don't read these books, but lots of people do. Apparently, lots of people do. And uh, that's why this book has been thrown into the mix by Ivanka. And I don't know about those other books, but Ivanka has another motive for this particular book. Women Who Work is a hashtag on her IvankaTrump.com website. And so this book is really a large extended advertisement using other people's words for IvankaTrump.com. It's a branding exercise, and not just for IvankaTrump.com, but for Ivanka Trump herself. And in that way, it's a little scary because you think, oh my God, her father's a president. We love dynasties. Is she going to run for president? I'm getting a little nervous as I read along. So who is this book for? Who are the women who work to whom it is addressed? Well, it's for uh, women and girls, I guess, who want to be entrepreneurs. It's, uh, you know, for women who work as assistants in corporations or businesses who are trying to build their own brand from home as freelancers, trying to have a website that makes some money, just like Ivanka. Uh, It doesn't really address the work of real women, in my opinion. It doesn't address trick chicken pluckers or fast food workers. It doesn't address waitresses or secretaries or receptionists or dental hygienists or house cleaners or nannies like the ones who work for Ivanka or garment workers or corrections officers. It's, you know, women who are of exactly the demographic that buy the kind of clothing that IvankaTrump.com is selling. Which is not expensive, but appropriate for the corporate workplace. Yes, it's above secretary store, but not that much above. I wonder if you could give us a sample of what it's like to read this book, what her sentences and paragraphs are like. Well, they're kind of astonishing. There aren't that many written by her or whoever wrote the book. Here's a little sample of her describing uh, IvankaTrump.com. We made it our goal to bring our brand to life in the digital space, giving millennial working women new content daily, including skill-building how-tos, profiles of industry leaders and rising stars, office-appropriate style stories, and life hacks for simplifying the day-to-day in general. That's the kind of sentence you get. That's like Ivanka at her most inspirational. 
Life hacks? I, I never heard that phrase before, but again, I'm not familiar with this uh, Your genre. life has never been hacked, John. <laughs> Apparently not. <laughs> and, and what is her advice for women who work? Uh, of course, the most important thing is mothers who also have jobs. Well, she she does address that because she is one of those mothers. So one of her, one of my favorite bits of advice she gives is kind of, uh, you know, bring your daughter to work thing. And she describes when Arabella, the the singer of Chinese folk tunes, when Arabella was in pre-K, Ivanka was working and Ivanka wanted Arabella to come visit her at lunchtime once a week on Wednesdays. And Ivanka describes this in this kind of gauzy way that really Arabella preferred her pink office at IvankaTrump.com to her workaday type of office at the Trump organization. So uh, she would come to the pink office and Arabella kind of just arrives at Ivanka Trump's office at midday from pre-K. Like, do we imagine little Arabella on the subway on her own? Did she take a bus on her own? No. She got into a car with the nanny driven by a driver and came to Ivanka's office. But those kinds of things are never discussed. And I did see a great thing on Atlantic.com of working women reading excerpts from Ivanka Trump's new book and like just looking at the camera in total befuddlement because she she lives in a bubble and she doesn't quite get it. One of the things about her writing style that is notable is she considers architect a verb. She does. And it's one of her favorite new verbs. You know how a child, when he gets a new uh, word in his vocabulary, like random or excellent, uses it all the time. So architect is her new word. And uh, it's probably a business buzzword that just people like me are not familiar with. This is her advice to working women. Every woman should, quote, thoughtfully architect a life she'll love, unquote. Should thoughtfully architect a life she'll love. And this is not Gwyneth Paltrow. This is Ivanka Trump. But I say tell that to the chicken plucker in Alabama. Architect that, bitch. (laughs) She also advises women who work to, quote, craft a family mission statement. Yeah, I love this. So you sit down with your family one evening and you say, like, what are our goals as a family? What do we want to achieve in the next five years? And you imagine, you know, little Arabella. I don't know, Mommy. I want to go back to the pink office. <laughs> you just can't imagine it. But again, not her idea. It's, it, I know it's not her idea. I don't remember whose it is because it's in a pink text block in the book. Pink yeah, there are pink text blocks for throughout the book for large chunks of books other people have written. Now, she's she's been criticized a lot about her reliance on the advice and and wisdom of of other people, but a lot of this advice is perfectly good. I mean, the Dalai Lama, it's he's got okay ideas, doesn't he? I don't know if he ever thought about his ideas as being like crafted and architected for women who work. <laughs> you know, Gandhi, as far as I know, wasn't really brooding about the uh, professional American working woman. But no, of course, they have a lot of good ideas. And in fact, even the people who've written 
self-help books and inspirational books whom Ivanka quotes uh, have perfectly good ideas about how to negotiate with your boss and, and stuff like that. But but Ivanka does, she does tell you to like go in and tell your boss you need flex time, you need maternity leave, you need family leave. And most women who work are not going to put their jobs in jeopardy by going into their boss and starting to negotiate their flex time. If you're Ivanka Trump, as Donald Trump has pointed out, even if you're sexually harassed at work, you can just say, goodbye, I'm getting a new job. But if you're a normal working woman, you can't organize the office around your family needs. To wrap up, what part of this book did you object to the most? I think the the worst and most distasteful part is the idea, the presentation of Ivanka Trump as a role model for women who work. Uh, This is a Manhattan socialite, an art collector, a gigantic heiress whose main job in the Trump organization is the direct result of nepotism and whose every other job has been basically dependent on her father's name and money. And now she's advising supposedly real people on how to succeed in the workplace. It's a joke. And it's also kind of embarrassing and shameful. And one thing, it's embarrassing to imagine Ivanka Trump has something to say to real women who actually have to work. And then for me as a writer, it's a little embarrassing that this collated collection of bogus ideas and self-help puffery and platitude and pablum and self-promotion is her idea of what the word book means. Amy Willens, thank you for coming in today. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks a lot, John. This episode of Start Making Sense is supported by The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. The Dig is hosted by journalist Daniel Denver and features in-depth interviews with the smartest voices on the left, from Corey Robin and Linda Sarsour to Kayanga Yamada-Taylor and Glenn Greenwald, discussing socialism, conservatism, immigration, mass incarceration, education, the media, and more. Find The Dig on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, a word about this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast. It's our sister podcast hosted by the nation's sports editor. This week, Dave gives us an inside look at the Know Your Rights camps being hosted by free agent quarterback Colin Kaepernick. Camps where a remarkable team of people try to educate youth about their legal rights, health, and history. That's this week on Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. Tune in every Tuesday at thenation.com slash edgeofsports. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast is co-produced by the LA Review of Books, and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles by Ernesto Orellano with additional technical assistance from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.
This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.